Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A listener's note before we begin. The following episode contains adult themes and content of a violent nature. It may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Just after 11.20 a.m. on April 19, 2020, Nova Scotia RCMP Constable Craig Hubley stopped for gas. He and his colleague, a member of the emergency response team, had been involved in a manhunt for hours. They pulled off the Trans-Canada Highway at a service station in Enfield and stopped next to a gray Mazda 3. It had been more than 13 hours since the first 911 call. 22 people were dead, and no one knew where the gunman was. The RCMP thought they were looking for a man dressed as a police officer driving a stolen silver SUV. The driver of the Mazda was sitting in the vehicle. He was dressed in regular clothes, but the officer noticed he was bleeding from an injury on his forehead. Constable Hubley realized who he was. He alerted his partner as he pulled out his gun. The other officer raced around the front of their vehicle, weapon drawn in time to see a silver handgun in the driver's hands. Both officers started shooting at 11.26 a.m. Just outside the gas station lot, witnesses took a video from inside their vehicle. It was posted to YouTube by an account called Haber MI. They got the killer right here. They got him on lockdown. They're going for him right now. They got the killer right here. Oh, they got him, bud. They shot him. I heard the four shots. I heard the four shots, bud. There he is. They got him. Gabriel Wartman was killed. And so that part of the story ends where we began 13 episodes ago. A man who killed 22 people in a 13-hour rampage had finally been stopped. An entire nation was left wondering, how did this happen? There is no simple answer for that. But our final chapter aims to dig much deeper to understand the making of a killer. I hope that the whole story comes out, that that this this kid uh, was a good kid who turned out to be an evil um, uh, mass murderer. Um, what happened? What happened there? I, I, I would like the whole story to be told. I'm your host, Sarah Ritchie. This is 13 Hours Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre. Episode 13, The Pathway to Murder. The man you just heard from is the gunman's uncle, Neil Wartman. Like everyone else, he's horrified by what happened that weekend. And it may seem strange to say the whole story hasn't been told, when we've been reporting on this for Global News for almost a year and sharing our findings over these 13 episodes. The media has dedicated hundreds of news articles to understanding the shooting spree. But this story actually begins decades before April 2020. We spoke with five experts who study violence with the aim of preventing it. Sociologists, criminologists, psychologists, psychiatrists. 
We also spoke to two of the gunman's uncles and two close family friends and reviewed more than a dozen research papers and hundreds of pages of court records. All of the experts agree we need to understand where violence comes from if we're ever going to end it. We need to know what made Gabriel Wartman into a mass murderer. This is not about making excuses. It's about stopping future tragedies, and you don't have to feel sorry for him to do that. Jillian Peterson has dedicated her work to trying to understand violent criminals. She's the co-founder of an American nonprofit organization called The Violence Project. And we started studying mass shooters in particular because there had been such an increase in the United States of mass shootings and just very little research on who these individuals were. And because we didn't understand their pathway to violence, a lot of the things that we were doing to prevent mass shootings, like trading ourselves to run, hide and fight and spending billions of dollars on you know, bulletproof glass, they seemed very reactionary and they weren't working because we were having more and more of these shootings. She's a psychologist and associate professor of criminology and criminal justice at Hamlin University in Minnesota. James Densley, the other founder of The Violence Project, is a sociologist. He's a professor of criminal justice at Metropolitan State University, also in Minnesota. Together, they've studied every mass shooting in the United States since 1966, using the Congressional Research Service definition of a mass shooting. So the shootings they study have at least four fatalities where some of the victims are murdered in public places in close geographical proximity. They wanted to know, who are these men? And they are almost exclusively men who commit mass shootings. And how did they get here? There has been a tendency to put labels on these individuals as monsters, as terrorists, as evil, as a way of kind of explaining away the behavior. It doesn't actually explain the behavior, it explains it away. So we can sort of say, well, that's evil people do evil things and monsters do monstrous things and terrorists, uh, you know, they commit terrorist attacks. And, and instead, I think we had to take a step back and say, well, that's true, but these individuals, they have families. They um, are growing up in our communities. They are our fellow uh, peers at school and they are our colleagues at work. And so if we understand them in that way, maybe we can actually prevent this violence from occurring as opposed to just reacting to it. As part of their research, James and Jillian analyzed media coverage. They spoke with the incarcerated shooters themselves, their parents, siblings, teachers, social workers. And as they compiled data, they found clear patterns. Four things the majority of these shooters had in common. Trauma, crisis, a kind of social uh, proof or script, uh, and then uh, the opportunity to, to perpetrate the crime. Let's break that down, starting with opportunity. So this is access. This is about access to people and places, uh, which during the pandemic, I think, was very interesting because as public places locked down, uh, some of that opportunity was diminished. But then, of course, it's also access to firearms. And if you don't have the means to perpetrate the crime, then, of course, yeah, you can't uh, do a mass shooting. We've told you in our earlier episodes that Gabriel Wartman had a collection of high-powered guns, some smuggled from the United States and hidden away throughout his home, his cottage, his warehouse. 
He had a stockpile of ammunition that police allege his partner, Lisa Banfield, her brother, James Banfield, and brother-in-law, Brian Brewster, helped him get. We should note that these charges have not been proven in court. The RCMP say all three have cooperated with their investigation and that none of them had any prior knowledge of the gunman's actions on April 18th and 19th. The gunman also put months of work and thousands of dollars into creating a real-looking police car and collecting pieces of genuine uniforms so he could look just like an RCMP officer. And even though police have said this attack was not premeditated, the guns, the ammunition, the mock cruiser, that's opportunity. Next, experts say the perpetrators are often inspired by other mass shootings, studying the media coverage and manifestos of other killers. This is what they call a social script. In about 24% of the cases James and Jillian have studied, they say the perpetrator showed an interest in other shootings. There's a kind of cultural script for this type of violence, particularly in American society. And uh, we see that many mass shooters study other mass shooters. They study them on the internet. They sometimes uh, go tumbling down the rabbit hole on uh, the internet and social media. They get radicalized online. The Quebec City mosque shooter, Alexandre Bissonnette, is an example of this. He specifically targeted Muslims in a 2017 attack that left six people dead after he spent about a month scouring the internet for content related to a proposed U.S. travel ban on Muslim-majority countries by former President Donald Trump. That attack then fueled hatred in New Zealand, where two years later, a man reportedly inspired by Bissonnette killed dozens of people in two mosques. We don't know if the Nova Scotia shooter was interested in other mass killers. Police have looked into his internet history, but they haven't shared the full details of what they've found. That is commonality number two. Then there's a crisis. 80% of mass shooters in the U.S. that James and Jillian studied reached an identifiable crisis point in their lives right before the shootings. We define a crisis as a a time-limited event, but it overwhelms your usual coping mechanisms. And it's a noticeable change from somebody's regular behavior, from their sort of baseline behavior. And and that crisis takes many different forms. It might be that you get fired from work. It might be that uh, there's a death in the family. It might be that there's a breakup uh, with a a partner. But there's something that just sort of tips somebody over the edge. In episode four, we told you Gabriel Wartman seemed to be in a downward spiral at the end of March and the beginning of April 2020. His business was shut down. He wasn't allowed to work. He was paranoid about COVID-19 and the lockdowns. He started stockpiling food and gasoline like he was preparing for the end of the world, according to court documents. He withdrew all of his investments and buried nearly three quarters of a million dollars in cash in his backyard. He sent an email to a friend saying, when the money runs out, people will need guns. Thank God we are well armed, he wrote. He talked about the coronavirus all the time, saying he knew he was going to die. And then there's the assault that happened just before the killing spree. According to search warrant applications on the evening of April 18th, he and his partner Lisa were celebrating their 19th anniversary and video chatting with friends. They talked about having a committed party to mark their 20th anniversary. And one of the friends said to Lisa, don't do it. She was upset. She ended the call. And then Gabriel accused her of ruining their anniversary. Lisa told police she tried to explain that she wasn't upset with him, but 
By then, he was angry, out of control. She went to bed, and that's where he found her. And according to police, that's where he started attacking her, pulling her by the hair, kicking her, tying her hands, shooting at her feet, before trapping her in the backseat of his mock police car. The court documents say she tried talking him down, and he replied, I'm done. I'm done. It's too late, Lisa. I'm done. That's a crisis point. And finally, mass shooters have almost always suffered significant trauma in their past. It's often childhood trauma, but there's also adult trauma in in our uh, data as well. But it's significant. I mean, we're talking about perpetrators whose parents had committed very serious crimes that they had themselves witnessed. Um, We're talking about uh, parental suicide, horrific child abuse, uh, neglect. Uh, And this was a, a constant theme that we saw time and time again. There are 174 mass shootings in James and Jillian's database. In 64 of those cases, they've gathered enough data to determine what the shooter's childhood looked like. 59 of the 64 shooters experienced childhood trauma. They were abused by their parents or other adults in their lives. They witnessed abuse and dysfunction, or they were neglected. That's 92%. What we do see is mass shooters who've got abusive parents who neglected them as children or physically and sexually abused them as children. We also see uh, intergenerational trauma, where it's not just the parents um, abusing the eventual mass shooter, but their parents were abusing them. And sometimes it goes back two or three generations. And so I think those, the roots are a little bit deeper there. This is what James and Jillian call the pathway to violence. And the shooter in our story fits right in with this pattern, according to his uncle, Neil. There's been a history in the Wortman family from my grandfather, who was brutal, to my father, who was brutal, to Paul, who was brutal, to Gabriel. And each generation seemed to get worse than the one before. It's really good that Gabriel had no children. We're going to go back and trace that intergenerational violence in the Wartman family. But first I want to say this. Gabriel Wartman made terrible choices to hurt people throughout his life. He alone is responsible for this killing spree. Make no mistake, there is no excuse for what he did, for the pain he caused, none. There are plenty of people who feel we should never talk about the gunmen at all, The day after the killing spree, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau urged the media not to print his name or publish his photo. Do not give this person the gift of infamy, he said. He called the shootings senseless violence and evil, and I understand why. But experts say when we don't talk about these things, we're missing an opportunity to create meaningful change. Explanations are not excuses. Here's Jillian again. We have a criminal justice system that's designed to not really look at the why. We have a criminal justice system that's designed to say, did you do this or did you not do this, period. And it's a hunt for kind of, did it happen or did it not happen? And we don't as much kind of pause and say, okay, where did this come from? I think in some ways it really humanizes the perpetrator, which is hard. Um, And I think in trying to explain where this behavior came from and what this pathway looks like, we're in no way trying to kind of 
excuse the crime or explain away the crime or say this person is not responsible for the crime. It's just about we have to deeply understand this. Tracy Viancourt is a child psychologist and the Canada Research Chair in Children's Mental Health and Violence Prevention. You've heard from her in previous episodes, and she agrees. These individuals don't just emerge organically one day as being sinister and evil and engaging in these horrific um, acts, right? Like there usually is a context to their behavior and the context tends to be pretty a pretty sad story. And even saying that people will take offense because they don't want to see these people as individuals after they've committed the uh, crimes that they did. And I understand that. I absolutely understand it. But I really value prevention over intervention. We'll get to prevention. But first, some context. I'm going to share with you what life was like in the Wartman family. And you might find some of this disturbing. Gabriel's uncles, Glenn and Neil, talked to us about growing up in their home in the 1950s and 60s. They're two of five children born to Doris and Stanley Wartman. Neil is the oldest, and then there's Paul, Gabriel's father. Glenn, who you've heard from in previous episodes, is in the middle. He's a year and a half younger than Paul. Then the youngest are Alan, who's four years younger than Glenn, and Chris, who's eight years younger than Alan. As adults, Chris and Alan both became RCMP officers. We tried calling a number we had for Chris when we started this investigation, but it was disconnected. Neil and Glenn say they don't have a new number for him. And Neil said Alan does not want to be contacted about this story. As we've mentioned to you before, Glenn told us he's living with dementia. He lives in a care home in Moncton now. Neil is his power of attorney and said his condition doesn't affect his ability to function and that his long-term memory is excellent. We've spoken with Glenn several times and his stories and memories are consistent from one interview to the next. We've also sought to verify everything he told us for this episode through other sources. Both Neil and Glenn say that their father Stanley was outwardly successful. At home, he was emotionally and physically abusive to his wife and his five sons. So uh, Glenn was born when I was 10 years old. So my father was babysitting because my mother was in the hospital and I soiled my shorts. He made me put the soiled shorts on my head inside out and told me to start knocking on the doors of neighbors to show them what I had done. And because I refused to go, he'd be instead. But that's just, I could tell you a dozen stories like that. Their mother, Doris, tried to intervene when she could. And if Stanley was hurting the kids, Glenn said she would take the brunt of it. I used to see my mother being knocked down. I remember in the kitchen. He knocked her down in front of Paul and I. Neil said Glenn got the worst of their father's abuse. And Glenn could never understand why. He remembers feeling affection for his father as a little boy, and he said that was never returned. And he hated me. He hated Neil, and he hated me. He favored Paul as much as possible for him. He was afraid of Paul. Paul didn't take any crap from him. Glenn said Paul was tough on him and would also go after the kids who bullied Glenn at school. Paul was athletic, and Stanley coached his sports teams. The youngest boys played football, too. Neil thinks he and Glenn were targeted because they were bookish, quiet, not so much into sports, and he felt they didn't live up to their father's idea of what boys should be. 
I was the second most tortured in that family. One night, I was about 12, and he had me pinned to the floor. He was beating me with his fists. My mother went running across the street. She couldn't stop him um, to Fred Forbes, who was a lawyer. He called the police. Uh, my father was taken up, uh, to, taken to court. The judge said to him, if you ever come back in front of me again, bring a suitcase. And my father never hit me again. But he turned to, uh, at that point, from physical torture to mental torture. The judge also ordered Stanley to see a psychiatrist. A clerk we spoke with at the Moncton Provincial Court said they destroy records older than 1980, so we don't have court records. But Glenn and Neil told us what they remember from that time. They say that Stanley was severely abused by his own father, George, and that the court-ordered psychiatric treatment only scratched the surface. The psychiatrist said to my mother, Stanley is going to need years and years of psychiatric help because he started to break down and talk about his childhood. And he saw himself bursting up and admitting that he had a horrible childhood. It scared him. He never spoke to his sons about his childhood, but he did talk to Doris about it. My mother said, if you never show affection, you don't know how to give it. And he never was. He was treated horribly when he was a little boy. Glenn has a lot of empathy for what Stanley and his siblings went through. If they made their heads, they got a smash in the head with a strap from their father. And if they're really bad, he took them and threw them down the cellar steps. And they spent the night there. No cot, no bed. Stanley stopped going to the psychiatrist as soon as he was allowed. James Densley said that shame and toxic ideas about masculinity can play an important role in this kind of intergenerational abuse. So I do think that if men feel like they're not achieving to the levels that they should be achieving, that they have a, a, a sort of additional stresses that are put upon them, that they feel like one way of reclaiming their masculinity is through violence. And so a lot of this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is about restoration in many ways. It's people who feel aggrieved, frustrated, angry, and how am I going to solve that problem? And in our culture, violence is viewed as a solution for men. Stanley used violence as a solution throughout the years, and there was no escape for his sons. He found other ways to torture his kids, Glenn and Neil both remember a family trip to Shediac, New Brunswick, which is about a 20-minute drive from where the Wartmans lived in Moncton. 
As they all got ready to leave, their dog, Mike, wasn't getting in the car. He just wasn't ready to come home and we were leaving. So when he finally came up to the car, we were in it and we were taking off without him. My father lost his temper and slammed the car door and drove away. He ran that dog till I thought the dog would die. We were all in the car screaming and crying and looking out the back window as the dog got smaller and smaller and smaller and became just a speck. Don't do that to little kids. That was our pet. Finally, my father pulled over. The dog caught up and got in. I thought his heart would burst and my father beat him with his fists in front of all his little boys. Another of Stanley's attempts at humiliation offered a twisted kind of relief. Neil said his father took issue with his manners and made him eat in another room on a folded down sewing table instead of with his family. I would get my plate and I'd go in there and eat by myself for two years. And I was as happy as a lark because I was away from that damn table where the rest of them were being tortured. Through the years, Neil said he felt there was nowhere he could turn for help. But I did have, my Uncle Arnold gave me as a, a gift when I was 12 years old, a 22 rifle, and I had one shell. And I used to lie in my bed at night and think, I really should shoot that man. But I never had the courage to do it. He still has that rifle. He said he saved it as a keepsake. And for years, he had recurring dreams about beating his father that followed him into adulthood. Neil moved out of his parents' house as soon as he could. In 1961, when he was 18, he got an apartment with a friend, and then two years later, he moved even further away to London, Ontario, to go to Western University. His younger brothers were all still in school and had to endure years of abuse. Everybody who lived at that house had to have... It had to affect their personality and the and road look. It just had to. And every one of us got out as soon as we could. At one point in the late 1960s, Doris tried to leave Stanley and his abuse behind. She bought a house a few blocks away from the family home and moved there with the two youngest boys. By that time, Neil said Paul wasn't living at home anymore either. He said Paul moved to Cleveland, Ohio around 1965, and he found work there in a furniture plant. Meanwhile, to make ends meet, Glenn said Doris had to go on welfare, and she had to rent out the rooms in the house. He said there were four bedrooms, and at times there were two people to a room. She cooked for everyone. But Doris was struggling financially. Research shows that leaving an abusive relationship is very difficult, particularly for women, and that was especially true back in the 1960s. It's still true today. After a couple of years, Doris moved back to the family home. She made an arrangement with Stanley that they would live under the same roof again, but in separate bedrooms. But I used to say to Melinda, They'd always fight. I'd say to her, do you love him? <laughs> she would never answer. She'd give me a funny look. <laughs> One day I said, you still love him? And she said, I hate his goddamn guts. Doris tried to get help for at least one of her sons. Around 1969, Neil said his mom told him his younger brother Alan's grades were failing and asked if he could finish his last two years of high school in Ontario with him. And I accepted that excuse and I took him. It was years later. He said, that wasn't why I was living with you. It was to get me out of the house where I could have a normal, you know, a normal uh, home. In the meantime, things in the Wartman house continued to be horrible. One night when he was about 22 years old, so 1971 or 72, 
Glenn said he and his mother spent an evening drinking at a friend's house. They were very close at that time, and both of them drank a lot. I home, the old man was flipping out. He started screaming at my mother. Glenn said she screamed right back. He was scared his father was going to hit her, a script he had seen play out time and time again since he was little. He thought about all the times he saw Stanley knock Doris to the floor and tower over her. So I had enough. I said, you old bastard. I got a knife. I went upstairs and they were screaming at each other in his bedroom, in his own bedroom. She wouldn't sleep with him. He's a pig. So um, he got up and he started screaming, get out of my room. And so I ran over to him and stuck the knife in his chest. Glenn was arrested at work the next day. And he was charged with um, attempted murder. That was subsequently reduced to wounding with intent. He was tried, found guilty, and sentenced to two years in Spring Hill Prison in Nova Scotia. He served nine months and was released. Stanley spent some time in the hospital with a punctured lung, but he survived the stabbing. In later years, he suffered from a heart condition. Stanley was found dead in his bed, at home in the summer of 1977. Gabriel and one of his cousins were downstairs playing Monopoly at the time. Glenn said his brother Chris, Gabriel's uncle, was looking after his nephews while Doris, Paul, and Evelyn were at work. Glenn and Neil stopped by the house on their way to the beach when the kids told them Stanley hadn't gotten out of bed that day. I went up and looked at his body and thought, thank God. He's finally gone. And it took a long, long time for the feeling that he left in that house to dissipate. It was there for years. You'd go in there and you'd get a chill. His presence was still there. As the years went by, Glenn and Neil said the cycle of violence in the Wartman family continued with their brother Paul in the way he treated his family. Unfortunately, this is a story that likely feels familiar to a lot of people because it happened in their homes, too. What's unusual about this case is the way the cycle of private family violence exploded into the public. Why did that happen? And why does this cycle of violence exist? I want to take some time to talk about how and why some people who are victims of abuse become victimizers, and others don't. Researchers have described this question as dauntingly complex. It presents scientists with a paradox. The vast majority of children who experience trauma and abuse do not go on to hurt others. But if you look backward, the vast majority of mass shooters that Jillian and James have studied for the Violence Project experienced trauma and abuse as children. And before she studied mass shooters, Jillian's work involved tracing the life histories of death row inmates in the United States And they, too, almost always suffered significant abuse. I kind of developed a saying in that office, which was the worse the crime, the worse the story. And it was always true, right? Like if if the more horrific the crime, you will always find the more horrific the story. And this is shown to be true time and time again. A separate 2007 study by researchers at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, reviewed the histories of 37 death row inmates. All of them were neglected as children. All but two were physically abused. More than half were sexually abused. And more than 80% witnessed violence in their homes as kids. The researchers concluded that childhood abuse is arguably the most crucial risk factor for future violence. Despite this evidence, 
Tracy Viancourt said that as a society, we're hesitant to talk about this link. Maybe we're worried about creating compassion for them. And I can appreciate the challenge in that, right? It's hard to be compassionate and show compassion towards somebody who has been so awful to so many people. I mean, he has destroyed the lives of hundreds, if not thousands of individuals. The the individuals who died are attached to families who love them, to communities who love them. Um, So I can appreciate why we don't like that. I also think is that we're worried about um, the stigma that's attached to it. I mean, it's hard to control your environment, right? And especially if you're a child, how do you control the abuse that somebody's enacting on you? And we don't want to set up kids for failure or for them to think that this is an entity that because they were abused that they're gonna it's gonna lead them down a pathway of abuse continuity. But undeniably some people do continue the abuse. There are different theories about why this happens and it comes down to a very old scientific debate nature versus nurture. We do know that there is a clustering of violence within families that aggression begets aggression across generations. And there's two main theories that link this together. So there's social learning theory, which postulates that children learn by observing, by modeling, by uh, imitating the behavior, the attitudes, and even the emotional reactions of others, and in particular, caregivers. The theory here is that the child sees their parents' violent and aggressive behavior being reinforced. No one steps in to stop it. The violence happens with impunity. So the child learns to mimic these same strategies, just like other things we learn from our parents. It's not quite that simple, though. Experts believe there may be a genetic component to aggression, too. That doesn't necessarily mean that your genes determine if you're going to be aggressive or a pacifist. Researchers say there's an interplay between genetics and environment that increases the probability of aggression. So think of it this way. You could be genetically predisposed to diabetes because it's in your DNA, but that doesn't mean you're guaranteed to get it. Environmental factors like smoking, obesity, or stress make it more likely that you will, and they can all add up. And there is a critical point, what is the threshold in genetics, right, in which once you cross that line, the disease becomes clinically identifiable. That's Dr. Jose Mejia. He's a child and adolescent forensic psychiatrist with a PhD in human genetics who works at Dalhousie University in Halifax. He said environmental factors together with genetics can create conditions for the disease. Once you're diagnosed with diabetes, you can adjust your environment to regulate your condition. Exercise more, eat better, quit smoking, reduce stress. He said this analogy is a good way to understand aggressive behavior. There are risk factors that can increase the likelihood a person is going to be violent, and abuse is one of them. Jose said someone could begin life with no predisposition to aggression and still become violent. But then abuse kicks in, right? And one of the things that abuse generates, quite obviously, is stress. It scares the living hell out of people, right? And then it puts your system in constant alert. The symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder linger, and they affect the way we react to stressful situations. This undermines a person's ability to stop and think. Over time, our brain adapts, in order not to die, of course, to learn that those alert signals might not be that relevant. But if you're going to trigger the alert, 
it goes all the way to 100. There's no 20, 25, 30, 40, it's as it happens in normal people. No, no, no. If you go from zero, to, if this you mean business, we're going to go all the way to the business. So that makes people a little bit less capable of handling stress. And just to make it even more complicated, our environment can have an impact on our genes too. And our genes are what we pass down to our children. A groundbreaking study published by a team of researchers at McGill University in 2009 demonstrated that childhood abuse and neglect actually alters the expression of DNA. Their work studied the brains of suicide victims after they died. It showed that those with known histories of childhood abuse had distinctive markers on their DNA when compared to the DNA of those with no history of childhood abuse. Their research provided biological evidence of what clinical researchers, psychologists, and psychiatrists have known for decades. People with a history of child abuse and neglect are far more likely to commit violent acts of self-harm, attempt suicide, and die by suicide than people who were nurtured and cared for as children. This is especially interesting because the Violence Project has actually found a link between suicide and mass shootings, because the shooters often do not intend to survive. I hadn't thought of these as suicides, but more and more, it seemed like that's kind of the often the thing that pushed perpetrators over the edge. They kind of decided it doesn't matter anymore. This is their final act. They're going to go out kind of in this way that makes everybody see them and everybody talk about them and it kind of exposes them to the world. Ultimately, studying the genetic predisposition to aggression has actually shown scientists that changing the environment can change the outcomes. So we know what kind of environment Paul Wartman grew up in. What about his son, Gabriel? Family members have said it was horrible too. We have tried to reach Paul and his wife, Evelyn, for an interview for this series by sending letters to their home. We had a colleague deliver a letter, too, but Evelyn told him, quote, I'm not accepting it. Just go away, end quote. We haven't heard back from them. Glenn and Neil said they don't have a way to get in touch with Paul. Emails we sent to addresses they had on file were not delivered. Paul did speak to the Toronto Sun four days after the shooting spree. He said he felt pain about the massacre and that he was seeing a psychiatrist. He also said he had contemplated suicide. We've done several interviews with family members and some friends of the Wartman family to gain insight into what Paul and Evelyn's home was like when Gabriel was young. We can tell you what they say about Gabriel's upbringing, but Paul and Evelyn have not responded to the allegations and there's no way of verifying what we've been told. Glenn said Paul was controlling and violent toward Evelyn and Gabriel. His name yeah. is Paul Stanley Wortman. He was named right. Glenn told us he saw his brother abusing Evelyn at home one night when Gabriel was just a baby. It felt way too familiar. One night I heard her screaming and crying. I ran down the hallway. I busted into the bedroom. He was sitting on top of her, straddling her and choking her. He was immediately concerned about his nephew. Now that little boy didn't need to see that crap. This happened when Glenn was living with Paul and Evelyn in Ontario in 1969. And shortly after, they said they were moving to the United States for a while. Glenn asked if he could take Gabriel back to Moncton, where they would live with his grandmother, Doris. 
If you recall, 1969 is when Doris left Stanley and moved out on her own. So Glenn said Paul and Evelyn let him take Gabriel, and they went to Massachusetts. He didn't know it at the time, but Evelyn gave birth to their second son, Jeff Samuelson, in the U.S. in 1970. He was adopted and raised in Massachusetts. We told you about Jeff in episode 5. Neil and Glenn said no one in the Wartman family found out about Jeff until 40 years later in 2010, and that includes Gabriel. Glenn said he wanted to take his nephew to live with him because he felt that Paul and Evelyn were unfit parents. Neil had concerns, too. In statements made to police after the killing spree, another of Gabriel's uncles said he had a difficult upbringing and that his mother and father were bizarre. Based on court documents, we know this was a former RCMP officer, so that means it was either Chris or Alan. Police say another witness told them he was severely abused as a child. Neil and Glenn believe that abuse came from his father. Neither of them saw Paul being physically violent with Gabriel, but they said Paul abused him mentally and emotionally. Paul was a successful salesman and a good provider, which is why Neil said he was surprised by what he found on a visit to their home. And I went to visit him one time. Uh, Gabriel was sitting there. This was in the winter. And Gabriel was sitting in a chair watching television with his winter clothes on. I'm talking scarf, hat, and coat in the door, in, inside. With, and when he breathed, you could see the, the breath, his breath in the air because Paul refused to turn on the heat. Neil and Paul do not have a good relationship. They live in the same part of New Brunswick, but they haven't spoken in decades. A lot of what Neil knows about his nephew's life comes from stories he's heard from Glenn, from his mother Doris before her death, or from Paul himself. And the things he heard about how his brother treated Gabriel remind him of his own childhood. Glenn told Neil of another incident that both of them found disturbing. As a little, little boy, he had a blanket. Little kids carry blankets around sometimes. Yeah. And Paul wanted to stop him from carrying the blanket around. So he made Gabriel sit and watch while he burned his blanket. So this yeah. does things to little boys. Neil, Glenn, and a family friend all said Paul's punishments were often severe, disproportionate. Both uncles said they could see the effect Paul had on Gabriel. Paul... Um, taught Gabriel much of what Gabriel learned. Um, he learned to be a thief and, and sneaky and, and a, a cheat. As a child, Gabriel had to win at board games and competitions, and he was a poor winner. He needed to prove he was smarter than everyone. And I didn't, I didn't care for that, but I understand it now. Um, he, needed, he needed to show um, people that I'm not acting like a pseudo-psychologist here, but I think he was trying to show us that he was worthy. He never had security because he, you know, he had no self-worth because it was his father. He was degrading. He mm -hmm. never gave Gabriel um, credit for his accomplishments. The experts we spoke with said this kind of diminished sense of self-worth is common among people who experienced childhood abuse and neglect. As an adult, we know Gabriel was violent toward family, friends, and strangers. In 2002, he pleaded guilty to assaulting a 15-year-old boy in a random attack. The victim said Gabriel was drunk at the time. Court documents say he was investigated by police for threatening to kill his parents in 2010 and that he assaulted his father on a family trip to Cuba several years ago, that he smashed Paul's head against a pool 
over and over. And Gabriel's partner told police that after the assault, Paul told her, quote, I was a bastard to my wife, I was a bastard to my son, and you need to leave Gabriel now, end quote. After the shooting spree, one of his uncles told police Gabriel was basically a career criminal. We know he smuggled guns, and he also allegedly smuggled cigarettes from the United States from the time he was a teenager. And of course, the reason we're talking about him at all is because he murdered 22 people. Researchers have looked at the links between child abuse and neglect and criminality. A 2002 study funded by the U.S. Department of Justice looked at more than 800 children in Washington state with confirmed histories of childhood maltreatment. It found that abused and neglected children are 4.8 times more likely to be arrested before the age of 18, twice as likely to be arrested as adults, and 3.1 times more likely to be arrested for a violent crime than people who were not abused. This was consistent with earlier studies. So we can't say that childhood abuse is the cause of criminality or violent behavior, but it is an important environmental factor, and it changes people. The impact of trauma is not only psychological, it is physiological. It's not just in your head. And that's because trauma actually changes the physical structure of the brain. Neuroscientists have shown this using MRIs. So if you look at the brain scans of children who have been um, maltreated by their caregivers, um, their brains are smaller, their ventricles are more enlarged, which, which means that um, it has like their prefrontal cortex, the decision-making part of their brain is implicated. Their brains are threat sensitized. So when we see a threat, our limbic system, so our, the older part of your brain, we sometimes call the reptile brain, uh, reacts. So the amygdala fires up and then your prefrontal cortex, which is your wizard brain, the thinking part of your brain, interrupts that and says, hey, hold on, maybe this isn't as stressful as we think it is. But when you've lived in that kind of context, your brain um, is now set in overdrive. It's hypersensitive to cues of abuse because that's what keeps you alive, right? Where you can notice within a nanosecond that your caregiver is in a bad mood. And it affects more than just the brain. In his 2015 book, The Body Keeps the Score, American psychiatrist Dr. Bessel van der Kolk discusses how researchers have shown links between childhood maltreatment, chronic stress, and an increased risk of autoimmune diseases, heart disease, and cancer. Simply put, living in constant fear of danger forces the brain and the body to adapt, reducing your ability to respond to stress, which leaves the body vulnerable. So at this point, you might think the kind of childhood abuse and neglect we've described is rare, but it's not. In the mid-1990s, there was a massive study done in the United States. The Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, or ACE study, involved more than 17,000 adult participants. Nearly half of the respondents were over the age of 60, but some were as young as 19. 75% of them were white. They answered yes or no to a series of questions designed to calculate the total number of adverse experiences or ACEs they were exposed to. Things like witnessing violence and dysfunction in the home, living with someone with a mental illness or addiction, being the victim of emotional, physical, or sexual abuse, losing a parent to divorce or separation, 
or having a household member go to jail. The findings were compared to the participants' detailed medical histories, and the results are pretty stark. Nearly two-thirds reported at least one adverse childhood experience, one in 10 reported three, and 12% reported four or more ACEs. If you think of this in terms of the entire U.S. population, that is 39 million people. Because there's a lot of children who overcome this. Um, There's a lot of children who don't overcome it either, though. Um, It affects their brain development. It affects their neuroendocrine uh, response to future stressors. It affects their ability to learn. It affects their memory. It affects their physical and mental health. It affects their relationships with others because this is their first prototype of attachment. And that prototype is destroyed by an adult who should know better and do better. So it is really problematic. And this is why um, my colleagues who work in family violence are desperate to reduce this because the outcomes of children who live in these families are not great. The impacts of childhood trauma on society as a whole are profound. According to the ACE study, people who had four or more adverse childhood experiences were 4.6 times more likely to be depressed for long periods of time, 4.7 times more likely to use illegal drugs, 7.4 times more likely to be alcoholics, 10 times more likely to use intravenous drugs. They were more than twice as likely to have 50 or more sexual partners in their lifetime and to contract a sexually transmitted infection. They were 12 times more likely to attempt suicide. Another paper published by British researchers in 2017 analyzed ACE studies from around the globe, including one in Canada, and their results are consistent with the original study in the U.S. They also found that people with four or more ACEs are 7.5 times more likely to be victims of violence as adults and eight times more likely to perpetrate violence. We see these effects in the Wartman family. Glenn said his mother drank and that he was an alcoholic for much of his life. He started sneaking drinks when he was 10, wanting to do what adults were doing at first. But in his teenage years, he said he drank because of his unhappy childhood. He also said Gabriel was an alcoholic and that others in the family have struggled with alcohol dependency too. And Glenn has struggled with depression. He attempted suicide more than once. I ended up in the psychiatric ward at Munson Hospital. I was so depressed. I talked to the doctor there about my childhood and how I was treated by my father. He didn't do anything. What if we could stop childhood maltreatment altogether? A 2019 study published by the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention estimated that would prevent 1.9 million cases of coronary heart disease every year, 2.5 million cases of overweight or obesity, 21 million cases of depression, and it would keep 1.5 million kids in high school. There's a massive economic burden to all of this, to the child welfare system, the justice system, healthcare, lost income, etc. The CDC did a study in 2018 that found that the costs associated with just one year of confirmed cases of childhood maltreatment in the U.S. amounts to roughly 
$428 billion. It's not the only cause of these things, but the science is telling us that ending childhood abuse and maltreatment could prevent millions of cases of heart disease, cancer, alcoholism, IV drug use, autoimmune disease, depression, suicide, violent crime, and mass shootings. So what are we doing to end this? For generations, this kind of violence has been viewed as private, none of our business. One of Glenn Wartman's earliest memories is a trip that he and his brother Paul took with their father when they were little boys. They were on a ferry that used to run between New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island called the Abbey Wait. Glenn was about three and a half. Paul was around five. Glenn said Stanley picked the boys up by their ankles and dangled them over the railing. He said his father had a sick sense of humor and thought this was funny. I can remember looking down at that water. It was blue-green. I knew it was deep. I couldn't swim. I was just a little kid. And then the foghorn went. <laughs> I, I was kicking like mad. I don't know how the asshole ever held on to me. I kept thinking, why isn't someone coming to help us? There's other people on the deck. Nobody came over. Nobody came over. Nobody stepped in. And throughout their childhoods, Neil and Glenn said they felt they had nowhere to turn. Tracy Viancourt said that tells us something important. If you have any degree of empathy, how do you, how do you just watch that and do nothing? Um, we need to get away from this idea that this diffusion of responsibility, where we think that it's you know, somebody else's task to manage this, and start standing up. I mean, the evidence is really clear. When people aggress against others with impunity, guess what? Aggression continues and it escalates. Ardeth Wynott is a sociology professor at Mount Allison University in New Brunswick. She said that's one of the biggest problems with intergenerational violence and abuse. What I see when I look as a sociologist at the community around these different generations of abuse, I see children being raised in homes where not only are the people who love them harming them violently, humiliating them, but we see entire communities of people who don't care, who don't care enough to intervene. Because rarely are these generations of family engaging this kind of violence in secret. And I think we need to talk about how damaging it is for youth to grow up in societies where there's no one who cares enough to intervene. I think people do care, and sometimes they don't know how to intervene. Experts say we not only can intervene, we have to. Jillian Peterson, the founder of The Violence Project, said that will require a change in perspective. There's things that our institutions can do, and then there's things that as a society we have to do. And I think a lot of times we get trapped thinking we have to change policy, we have to have legislatures doing it, when really there are things that we as individuals and that, say, our schools can do. Jillian advocates for universal trauma screening in schools and doctor's offices. Kids would fill out a simple 10-question survey. The results could be triaged, identifying families in need of the most help and connecting them with resources and services. The goal would be to keep families together and help them. People will say it, it's going to over 
um, identify, right? Because there's going to be individuals who are going through lots of stuff, but they have really warm, supportive environments and they're okay. But it's better to kind of over-identify and say, okay, here's the 10% of students who have I said that this, this, this is happening in their lives and in their households. Let's make sure we're reaching out to those family and seeing what do they need, right? And how can we support them? Again, that takes resources that elementary schools don't necessarily have. She also wants to see changes in education curriculum so that we're teaching our kids, particularly young boys, about social-emotional learning. Teaching essential life skills like empathy and talking about our feelings alongside math and reading. Talking openly about what mental health is and what mental illness looks like and what those early symptoms look like and how to recognize them right away. Because a lot of times people don't get treatment for many, many years because it's scary and they don't know what's happening because we haven't opened up that conversation to young people to say, this is actually very normal. 50% of people are going to meet criteria for a diagnosable mental illness. So here's what it's going to start feeling like, and here's what you do. This will require more resources in schools and doctor's offices. It'll require a lot more money for mental health care and social services, and that's where governments need to step in. It will also require a shift in how we see our responsibility as individuals, as members of our communities, as members of society. If you believe a child is being harmed, you have a legal obligation to report it. Tracy Viancourt says it's not someone else's responsibility, it's everyone's. I also want to make it clear what the reporting obligation is here. It's a suspicion. You don't have to have concrete proof. If you suspect that somebody is causing harm to a child, or a child is exposed to intimate partner violence, or your neighbor's wife is being beaten, you call, you call that in, you make a report and then allow the authorities to make the appropriate call. We know the authorities were called when Stanley Wartman was beating Neil and his arrest didn't end the abuse. Things have changed in the decades since. For example, in Nova Scotia, there is a specialized domestic violence court that takes a trauma-informed approach to working with abusers and their families. The court's website says that's because evidence shows many people who come into contact with the law have suffered a trauma that continues to affect them. It recognizes the unique circumstances of domestic violence. You need to take responsibility before you're referred to this court, usually by pleading guilty. Then a rehabilitation plan is created, and the judge will factor your participation in that program into your sentence. The point is, you'll get help, but domestic violence is still a crime. Artith thinks there may be another way. She said we need to look beyond police, prosecution, and prison to help abusers address the problems in their lives, heal their own wounds, end violence, and stay with their families. For example, we have residential treatment programs for those suffering from addiction. I think we should be considering how residential or secure treatment programs for those who are violent to children and partners in the home might allow victims of family violence to stay in their home. And a residential treatment program can provide the sort of wraparound services that are needed for those who are being violent. She said there are almost no mental health programs designed specifically to help men who are violent toward people in their own homes. One such program in Nova Scotia is called New Start. It was founded by people who worked in women's shelters because as they struggled to help women escape violent situations, they could see no one was helping the men. And that might be difficult to accept. 
Why should we dedicate any resources to helping abusers when the women's shelter system is overcrowded and lacks funding and victims are struggling to get help? Ardith said she understands that question too. Removing the stigmas around masculinity and men's mental health issues, which are more likely than women to include anger, rage, aggression, and violence, is crucial to ending the cycle of violence. When Ardith has advocated for these resources in the past, there's been severe backlash, death threats in the comment sections of news articles. And I think there's a a collective cultural reflex of saying, well, how dare you? How dare you justify their behavior? How dare you um, do anything other than depict this person as a monster? Uh, And I think we have to get over that. No one wants to justify that behavior. It's about ending it for good. There's also more we can do as individuals to look out for one another when someone's in a crisis. And that can help prevent violence like the kind we're talking about in this series. In the first couple of days after the killing spree, we heard a lot from people who knew the gunmen who were shocked. How could the Gabriel Wartman they knew do something like this? Even his uncle Neil said he didn't see it coming. I I couldn't believe it. Like I knew, I knew he was violent. I knew about his fistfights. I knew about him strangling his girlfriend, Lisa. Um, I, I knew um, about him traveling to Moncton with a loaded gun, but I never thought he would murder. I think that disbelief is natural. No one wants to believe that someone they know or love is capable of such horror. But in hindsight, there were warning signs that Gabriel Wartman was in crisis in the days and weeks and years leading up to the shooting. James Densley and Jillian Peterson said the mass shooters they studied often talked about their plans before the killings. They displayed noticeable signs of stress, agitation, and crisis. Yeah, there's the classic line of, if you see something, say something. But often what we've seen in our research is that it wasn't just one person that saw something. It was five people, 10 people. In some cases, up to 30 people knew that something wasn't right about Uh, this individual, that they were posting things on social media where they were threatening violence, where their behavior had uh, dramatically changed. It was a noticeable change. You know, the type of person that shows up for work on time every day and then all of a sudden doesn't show up to work or they start showing up late. That might not necessarily be a warning sign that a, a mass shooting is about to occur, but it's certainly a warning sign that something has changed and something's off. We need to be much better at noticing when people are struggling, much better at asking people how they feel and caring about the answer. And then we need to know what to do. Crisis intervention and suicide prevention are skills we can all learn, like CPR, Jillian said. So when I teach crisis intervention, I teach about someone in a crisis, sort of being a balloon full of air, ready to pop. They've just, it's too much. Um, And they're just, and crisis intervention is the art of just letting a little bit of air out, right? Like let a little bit of air out, get the person through that moment. You're not trying to like completely deflate the balloon. You're not trying to figure out how it got so big. You are just trying to let a little bit of air out. And here's the really important thing about taking a more proactive approach to crisis intervention. You never know what you might be preventing. You might be saving someone from a bad day. You might be helping them leave an abusive relationship or stopping them from harming themselves. You could stop a murder. There are situations, of course, where intervening personally might not be possible or could put you at risk. 
There have been cases where people who tried to help have been hurt or even killed. If there's a reason to believe someone might be dangerous, the only option may be to call the police. But calling the police to respond to a mental health crisis can also end in tragedy. Advocates have been saying for years that mental health care in Canada is underfunded and there aren't enough resources for people in crisis. Police themselves have said they're not equipped to handle mental health crises. I think of Chantelle Moore of the Clayquot First Nation. Police were called to do a wellness check at her Edmonston, New Brunswick home in the summer of 2020, and the officer who responded shot and killed her. We're still waiting to hear from prosecutors if this incident will result in any charges against the officer. This might make it seem like there are few options. When you're too afraid to intervene yourself, but you're scared that if you call the police, they may kill your sibling or parent or friend instead of helping, James Densley says that's a huge problem. So if if your only option is if you're worried about somebody, I'm going to call the police and, and file a report, and then the police are going to respond with a punitive action. They're going to kick in the person's door, they're going to search their property, uh, and then they're going to arrest them. Well, that may have prevented a crime. So that's a good thing. But the bad thing is that all you're doing is exacerbating the grievance that that person has. That's not going to get them the connection and services and help that they need. So we do need other outlets in addition to the police that we feel comfortable reporting to who are then going to provide less punitive response to somebody who's struggling. Gabriel Wartman's actions destroyed countless lives. What he did was atrocious. Trying to understand who he was is part of trying to understand the bigger picture of what happened that horrible weekend and why it happened. And telling this part of the story is not an attempt to earn sympathy for him. It's about asking, how do we make sure this never happens again? And I wouldn't say that we are going for kind of empathy and compassion in this work. I think we're going for understanding, right? There's a difference between feeling empathy and feeling like we have to understand where this behavior comes from. It has to be A leads to B leads to C leads to D. And if we don't do that, we are never going to stop this. Um, We are never going to be able to cut this off as a society unless we're willing to ask those questions. The thing that's hopeful for me is there is a sense here in the United States in particular, there's a sense that mass shootings are inevitable. And what I think our research shows is that they're not inevitable, they're preventable. This tragedy has shaken our sense of identity as Nova Scotians. The impact rippled out across communities, across the country. Serena Lewis works for the Provincial Health Authority as a grief coordinator. She said when something like this happens, we don't always know how to talk about it. But the healing begins with the difficult first step of conversation. How do we lean in and talk about this? I often say to people when I'm teaching, you know, when it's mentionable, it becomes manageable. But it's when we stop talking about this and the importance of healing. So if we think about where the end is in sight, I often will encourage teams when I'm with them in these areas saying, what would be your ultimate goal for these communities? Because we can't go back to before April 18th. That, that doesn't exist anymore. So we will shape a new identity. Some people globally have told me this could be a 20 year span for these communities. That's if we lean in. We have to shape a new identity because 
We can no longer say this kind of violence never happens here. It has happened. And as Maritimers, it's happened more than once. There was Moncton in 2014, Fredericton in 2018, and now Portapique in 2020. These men were raised in our communities. A shooting like this fractures the peace, especially in a place where people take pride in being friendly and welcoming. Maybe this is one of the takeaways for us all in the aftermath when so many of us are hurting. We can do better. We can all take the time to look out for one another, ask each other how we're feeling. We can be better at recognizing when our loved ones need help or when we need help ourselves. We can be better at asking for help. The system isn't perfect. There are resources available. If you're in a crisis, there are crisis lines you can call, people you can speak with, people who want to help. The first step is seeing the problem and facing it. And you don't have to do it alone. This project has always been about telling the stories of the people who died and their families. Their grief will last a lifetime. Almost a year on, everyone's healing journey is different. Nick Beaton said his three-year-old son, Dax, is getting him through the darkest days. As he gets older, he's starting to remind Nick of Kristen. Every time I was in the shower, she could be at work and I get in the shower, she would happen to stop in and open the door to talk to me and like let the cold air in and stand there talking, like shut the door. Dax does that to me, not even knowing. It was just those things that as a couple drove you nuts, the little stuff, but you miss so much. And uh, I just kind of laugh and start crying when it happens now because there's no way for him to know that and he does it. Back in the summer, Harry and Corey Bond organized a truck rally at Peggy's Cove as a tribute to Joy and Peter and all of the victims. Harry said he's going to hold on to the memories of how happy his parents were together. Oh, yeah, I can go in my head right now and I can I can hear mom's laugh it's and that's that'll never be forgotten and uh, when they're both together um, in, each, in each other's arms a smile on both their faces it's, uh, it's things like that he told me about how much time and energy he'd poured into organizing that event and when the rally ended he said he needed to turn his attention to taking care of himself talking to someone to start the healing process John Farrington has a little wooden shelf in his home devoted to his parents, Don and Frank Galenchen. There are only a handful of items on it, an urn with their ashes and Frank's tape measure. Everything else, the family photos, the keepsakes, it was all destroyed when the house burned to the ground in Portapique. His parents' unconditional love got him through the hardest moments of his life. I'd been through a lot, you know, I've... Bruce, you know, I've lost a child, you know, and my parents were there, you know, through it all. And it was times where I didn't think I could pull through where they pulled me through. So I guess if they just knew how proud of that, they knew how proud of them that I am and how honored that they were my parents is what I would want them to carry with them and know how much I love them. Lisa McCauley's sister, Jenny Kierstead, is part of the Nova Scotia Remembers Legacy Society, which aims to create a permanent memorial to all victims of the shootings. She said she's centering compassion as she works toward healing. And I think 
that if moving forward, if I were to, to, to request a change from humanity, it would be to start a daily practice of remembering that light, remembering the goodness within ourselves and tuning in. And when we see ourselves sliding into a dark place and reaching for the substance or um, the alcohol or, you know, an unhealthy habit to reach out for help or to have a, a touch point, you know, for me, it's, it's compassion and it's easy to get angry. It's easy to hurt others because we're feeling so much pain ourselves. And it takes a daily commitment to stay positive. And I think that's, we need more of that. We need, we need more positive messages in the world and more guidance around effective behavior for solving our pain and healing our wounds. I want to express our deep gratitude to the families of the victims for speaking with us, to everyone who shared memories of their loved ones, who trusted us with those precious details and explored their grief for the sake of understanding. Thank you. I wish you all the very best. This project is dedicated to the memories of Emily Tuck, Aaron Tuck, and Jolene Oliver, Peter and Joy Bond, Don and Frank Galenchen, John Zoll and Joanne Thomas, Greg and Jamie Blair, Lisa McCulley, Corey Ellison, Sean McLeod and Alana Jenkins, Tom Bagley, Lillian Campbell, Heather O'Brien, Kristen and Baby Beaton, Heidi Stevenson, Joey Weber, and Gina Goulet. Thank you so much for joining us. 13 Hours Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre was created and produced by me, Sarah Ritchie, and Alex Kress. Alex and I wrote this final episode with investigative reporter Brian Hill. Our story producer is Dila Velasquez. Sound design and audio production by Rob Johnston. Editing assistance from Neil Benedict. Special thanks to Mike D'Souza, Managing Editor for the Global News Investigative Unit. I'd love to have you tell a friend about this podcast, and you can help me share these important stories by rating and reviewing 13 Hours on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We have much more on our website, including articles, maps, and photos. All of that written and curated by Brian Hill, Alex Kress, and me. Just head to globalnews.ca slash 13 hours. You can also find us on Instagram at 13 Hours Podcast. If you have a question about this episode or series, please get in touch on social media or by email at 13 hours at curiouscast.ca. I'd love to hear from you. Our contact information is in the show notes too. We are still investigating this story and we'll bring you any updates as they become available. Watch for future episodes when the public inquiry begins, likely in the summer of 2021. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>